All right. I don't know if it's legal. Oh, that's two minutes. We can't do that. We'll wait one more minute. I was going to say, we start two minutes early because we got we we have Scott McAndrew back, and now we're ready to, <laughs> that's ridiculous. Ready to get down to the meat of the matter. But, um, David, so great having you back from, um, from Africa, and uh, you said good trip. Yeah. Physically, did you hang in there? Is it always a little bit of a battle? Um, it's, it's a battle. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it was uh, no problems. Nothing that kept you off the no, ministry no, scene? No, just uh, get up and go. That's great. That is so great. Um, did Jane tell you that we found your, your flight on the screen yeah, and followed it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. If you want to watch a flight, go and see Papa. Because he's got all flights that have ever happened in the history of flights. Right? Did you start with Orville and those guys? Orville, yeah. yeah. That's where you started? They didn't have electronics back then. No, well, I love that Papa's watching that kind of stuff. Never know. Uh, Jared, could you pray for us? And then, Scott, would you start us in Esther chapter 5? You don't have to do anything. Thanks, Thanks Jesse. We are now We are now on. Um, how about it, uh, Jared, if you'd start us yeah, let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you for this this day, Lord. Thank you that we get to come together and go through your word. And I pray that you would give us wisdom and the ability to discern it and see the truths that you have in here for us, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Mm, amen. Um, Scott, could you read? I think it'd be worth, this is so short, but um, so good. Before I asked Scott to read it, um, I thought Alistair Begg was really neat. He said, Make sure you don't think outside the chapter, right, Papa? Oh, absolutely. Because he said, so I'm really thankful for this group that you're not looking ahead, that you haven't read ahead, <laughs> that you don't know the end of the story. It's a lot better if we just stick in chapter 5 according to Alistair Begg. Scott? Yeah, so you want me to read the whole text? Let's do. Okay, Esther 5, starting in verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she, had, she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. 
Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Yeah, there is so much uh, to even think about here. It's uh, hard to know exactly where to start. Although I would love your guys' thoughts on, in chapter 5, verse 1, and it was earlier, do you remember when we saw earlier how it seems like the language of the writer, which is really the Holy Spirit through whoever wrote the book of Esther, kind of gangs up words to uh, to make us believe that the king and Esther and that everybody else thinks they're in control and they're really not in control at all. The royal, look at that, uh, Esther put on a royal robe um, in the inner court of the king's palace um, with the king's quarters and on his throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. Um, everything seems royal there. Uh, before his royal throne. But once again, God's the one that's in control. And no matter how royal everybody thinks they are, that's not really the, the case. Papa, go back to that first couple of chapters. Do you think that that's the intent of the writer here? Um, just again, the um, to show us, the, to contrast the difference between God's sovereignty and what people think. Well, first of all, God's name, as we've talked about before, is not overtly mentioned, but his, um, the coincidences are seen everywhere, uh, which is an indication that while remaining anonymous, God is working in his providence and sovereignty to work all things out mm -hmm. for our good and his glory. And shows there aren't coincidences at all. Like just like in our life. That's right. Yeah, I and we don't ever see we don't ever see the providences ahead of, ahead of time, but through the rearview mirror. Yeah, after they've happened. Yeah, and you remember at the end of chapter four, Esther says to really well Mordecai to Esther, "You're here for such a time as this. Could that be?" And that's all of us all the time, which is just incredible to think about. I forgot it. Uh, throughout much of this week, but it's such a good life. And then if I perish, I perish. Yeah, could you guys comment on, there is a real risk here. And I think for the first 57 years of my life, I didn't realize just how risky it is for Esther to go to the king at this time. There's a number of reasons. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'll just list these. One guy mentioned this. He just said, number one, Esther has to break the law in which the penalty for doing so is death. And I mean, like she could get her head cut off, literally get her head cut off for going in there. Uh, you know, and the guys with axes, right? Yeah, or the picture behind them, they found some of these that there was an axe, likely the guy with an axe, like holding it up. Yeah, so she literally has to risk her life. Number two, Esther has to admit that she has been deceiving Ahasuerus about her ethnic background for five years. Number three, Esther has to persuade the proud Ahasuerus to effectively reverse an irreversible law. So in, and in so doing, he will lose a huge amount of promised revenue. And number four, Esther has to oppose and overcome one of the most cunning and powerful foes in Persia, Haman. So I mean, those are just four things that the, 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 the deck is stacked against her, as it were, but God's on her side. But like going in, she thinks she, she literally might die. I mean, you just have to feel, the, we know the outcome. Like you said, we're dipping outside. But if you were put yourself in her shoes, there is, a, she would be trembling. Like I was thinking if she had an Apple watch on, her heart rate would have gone crazy. Yeah, it would have yeah. warned her. Like if she's standing there waiting, is she going to 
perish or not. Yeah, a royal Apple Watch. Royal Apple Watch, yeah, that's right. I think if you perish, you perish. <laughs> right, but she's not just saying that as a, uh, I don't think it'll happen, but yeah, she really could. Well, well she could lose her life. And, and there's one other, if Scott, if you know what I mean, yeah. adding. Uh, she has is about to expose him. He's issued a irreversible order, and he's going to now have to turn, do an about face, retract that order, issue another order, and he's going to lose face. And, and losing face is a big deal for yeah, It sure seems like it. Yeah, and he, she hasn't seen him for 30 days, right? He hasn't called her in for 30 days, which means it doesn't seem like he's that interested. Jared, do you have more on that? I mean, we know that this law that's set up in the Persian kingdom is very intricate and it demonstrates the control of the king over the people within the kingdom. I mean, all he's got to do is extend the golden scepter or not extend it and the person's capiche. Yeah. So in this, you see the, the control that humans try to exert over their environment as opposed to the, the sovereignty of God. God is really the one in control of whatever the king is going to decide here. Mm -hmm. And how convicting. Because we do, I think, a similar sort of thing in uh, a lot of ways. Uh, Jared, could you give us kind of the, the testimony of, um, of Esther here and how that fits with ours? Yeah, so as we're getting into the first few verses here, um, I think we see an, an image of what it looks like to come to God the Father. Just through Esther having to have faith and go into to king xerxes here i talked about it back in chapter two where with Haggai the eunuch um where he clothed or he gave esther the cosmetics and then it was a, a an image of what it looks like for us to have christ's righteousness imputed onto us as we go into the father and i think we have another similar situation here where esther she has this fear of punishment she doesn't know what's going to come but she has to have faith and go into the king not knowing what's going to come and so Esther does this, and um, it says she won favor. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me of John six thirty seven, where it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Mm. So we have this image of Esther going into King Xerxes. It's very similar to us going to God the Father, who has all this domain, all this power over creation. And not only does she win his favor, but he offers her half the kingdom in the mm -hmm. same way that, God accepts us when we come to him, when we come to Jesus. And not only that, but he bestows his blessings on us and he gives us his Holy Spirit and he, he pours out these blessings richly upon us. That great. So Jesus wins our, our favor before God, really wins favor for us where we get his righteousness. And then he who did not spare his only son, but along with him will now then graciously um, shower all kind of blessings out of the overflow of his grace, one blessing after another. Scott, any thoughts on, on that or going forward here? Yeah, oh, man, yeah, let me see if I can, it just ties in exactly with what Jared is saying there. Let me just read a little bit here from, from this com commentary, like comparing the kingdom of Xerxes versus the kingdom of God. I think it's just a good thing to think on those two. And uh, this is what Ian Duguid says. He says, once again, when we consider the empire of Ahasuerus and the kingdom of God side by side, we cannot but be struck at the contrast. Praise God that we serve an altogether different king than the one that Esther knew. Approaching God is not like approaching Ahasuerus, with our knees trembling and hearts wondering whether we will survive the encounter. Who can predict how such a capricious ruler will respond? 
And one day he may accept you, one day he's literally off with your head. Our God, however, invites us to come into his presence regularly, indeed frequently, so that we may make known to him our petitions and requests. No special subtlety is required in framing our desires. We don't need flowery court language or crafty psychological maneuvers to trick God into giving us what we need. On the contrary, he is a father to us. And even if earthly fathers provide good things for their children, how much more will our heavenly father give us the things we need to grow and prosper? And he just says, our king has an open door policy. He talks about Christ paid, the, the cost was high, Christ had to shed his blood, but then this is just was convicting. What have we done with this privilege? We have an entry card signed in blood, which gives us access to the throne of grace. We can bring our prayers and petitions to the Lord of the universe, whose word accomplishes all his holy will. What have we done with that glorious invitation? So I just think it's a moving thing to think about the two kingdoms, and we, we've got a card signed by blood. Are we using it? Are we using, making access to this precious privilege that we have to come? Yeah, so good. Papa, anything? Well, Scott mentioned subtleties in approaching our God or the king versus our God. And, and you know, Esther had to, she knew this guy. Uh, and it wasn't like she was a new bride. She'd been around for a little while. Uh, he was unpredictable. I imagine he, from what I hear, he's, he could be a pretty temperamental guy, pretty violent at times. And no wonder she was afraid. So she did have to put on her, her best Alistair was full. If y'all listen to Alistair Begg, he, he will get a, you'll get a laugh a minute. Alistair said, she put on her finest robes, and maybe she, she talked to Haggai, and Haggai told her, what, ask her, well, do I wear heels or do I wear flats? And he said, probably heels with a rope. <laughs> <laughs> That's just Alistair. But uh, she had to, she had to um, there's a decorum. You see this even with, with the king and queen of England. I mean, there's a certain protocol. You, you, you bow, you curtsy, you do all those things. And, but she knew all that. She, and she wasn't a new kid around the block. So she was skillful and she thought about this. She was precise. She planned things. And we don't have to do that with our God. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can right this minute come before his throne and pray. And he invites us to do that. So good. And we ought to. And, you know, you're adding the list of things that make... Uh, King Xerxes so predictable, he's usually drinking something, too. <laughs> I think stronger than Diet A&W, you know, because he seems like in every chapter, so you don't he's, know he's for sure. Yeah, well, yes, I guess we could say that. So he's got this, he's an unpredictable guy, for sure, which makes this all the more um, amazing here. Scott? Yeah, can I just squeeze in one other yeah. thing? That Go back to chapter 4. and th These guys already covered that. Where they fast for three days. They don't eat or drink for three days. And almost everybody, Papa Fred said this, I listened to it, uh, they almost for sure were praying. Like they had to have yeah. been fasting and praying. Certainly many people were praying. But, I mean, this is a serious moment. They're praying about this moment that she won't perish. My guess is they're praying for Esther for wisdom for her, and they're praying about this edict that's gone out. But they're fasting. But it just reminds me that we've said about, we've said this many times at our church, but trials drive us to pray like that. Yeah. Amen. God is... He's always doing, he always has good and wise purposes for trials. But certainly, I think one of the things that almost always happens, like this week, probably something happened that was unpredictable in your life. What happened? You prayed. Like, that's one of the first things you're going to do is pray. And I think Tony Ranke talks about how our prayer life can so, we can just go into the motions with our prayer. And our, our prayers just kind of, we just pray the same old things. But when a, when a trial hits, it's like new life is, is, is breathed into it. And we could literally go around this room and tell hundreds of stories where trials have driven us to pray. And I, here's just one quick story. I don't think Martin Kelly would mind me telling this, but Martin Kelly, the, Kelly's pregnant with Micah. You know, the fir their first child, they're in the hospital and she's progressing normally. And then all of a sudden she stopped progressing. Uh, and so the nurses, some of us were in the room and they said, if she doesn't keep progressing, they're going to have to do a C-section. 
And that's not a, a ideal necessarily for the first pregnancy. So what happened, some of us prayed. I remember Mark asked me to pray and Mark prayed. And then she still wasn't progressing. I think we maybe left, but Mark said at some point they, they told everyone to leave the room. And it's just Mark and Kelly with, with baby Micah. And they sat there by the time. I'm sure Mark, like they held hands and they prayed that they, this pregnancy would progress, that it would be a natural birth, that Micah would be born healthy. And what happened? That's exactly what happened. Like God was gracious. He answered this prayer. But I was thinking if God doesn't, if if God makes the, the, them progress normally, they would never have pushed everybody out of the room. They never would have had this sweet moment of prayer. But God, in his goodness, he, he gives this trial where they cannot, they're helpless in this situation. The doctors can't do anything. So they pray. And just, I just think we got to remember the goodness of God. He drives us to, to pray when, he, when a trial comes. And you see that here, I think, at the end of Esther 4. So just, just worthy to mention. And we saw that, too, with, with not only Esther's court, praying or yeah. fasting, but then she um, asked Mordecai to ask everybody in Susan yeah. to, to pray and fast also for three days. So mm-hmm. yeah. pretty amazing. So once again, something that's really satanic came in, in, in what Haman meant for evil, God means for good. Yeah. To many people to pray, to see how God answers there. Yeah, so that's so good. You've got some insights, Pop, on the golden scepter. I wondered about this thing since oh. I was a little guy. <laughs> Oh, goodness. I, Got it at a yard I was going to bring sale, a picture, right? but I only have one colored picture, and it's Darius sitting on his throne with the golden scepter. But it's just a long uh, gold uh, scepter, whatever a scepter is, and on this bulbous top on it, and he would hold it like this. There's pictures of Darius and also Xerxes. The Xerxes one wasn't in color, so I didn't think that would be very – it wouldn't – display the gold but he hold what held like this and then if if you he accepted you he put he put it forward so that's what esther he saw esther and he extended the scepter yep so the axeman didn't have to right work. take care of that that that's an amazing that in verse three there um and the king said to her what is it queen esther what is your request it shall be given to you even up to half the kingdom. Um, Papa, you were saying that that's kind of what they just said to say, you kind of have whatever you want here. Well, that was, remember, Herod did that to the young girl and got John the Baptist's head. You know, I'll give you up to half, whatever you wish, and up to half the kingdom. That was a hyperbole, I Mm -hmm. think. But it meant that he was propitious and gracious to her. So... Uh, she could have, and and you know some some of the commentators say why didn't she ask right then? Uh, but she was she knew him. I, I think that's the key to this. Mm-hmm. She, this was not the time. Yeah, growing up, I kept thinking that it was because she was chicken, and uh, Alistair Begg didn't you know kind of said no. She's probably wise in the way she's kind of planning this out. Jared, any thoughts there? Um, as we head into one through three or four to five there. Um, I kind of just want to touch on the fact that faith, uh, my point says faith is a starting line, not a finish line. So now we've gone through four chapters here. Esther hasn't really had a good moment to demonstrate the fact that she's faithful, but now she has. The first couple verses of this chapter show that she is now justified by faith. She's proving that with what she's doing here, but now the trials are really going to begin for Esther. Now she's got to go through and begin the petition here. And it's kind of like what, what Mark talked about in his sermon last week a lot. Now that you're a Christian, the suffering is going to begin. Hmm. 
Um, a lot of people think you, you come to Christianity and all of a sudden now all your problems are resolved because you know God the Father, but now God is going to take us through these trials which are going to sanctify us and make, a, make us more like Christ. So as we go through the next few verses here, we're going to see Esther has to actually begin to bear fruit for God. Yeah, and don't you think emboldened by what Scott said with these three days of prayer will will cause you to do the right thing, to do it and to do it with courage and, and boldness. Any um, insights there, Scott, before four and five? Six, Papa, how about reading? How about four to six? Yes, sir. Uh, and Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? And it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Good. How about seven as well? As well. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, let me go ahead and do eight. Yeah, let's do if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Good. Scott, what do you see? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean it's hard to know exactly, like you're saying, why she doesn't tell him right then and right there. Like, she seems to have an opportune time. He's favorable towards her. He's now happy. He's drinking wine at the feast, everything. Like, why not right now yeah. ask? And I mean, I think ultimately it's probably it's a wise decision. She thinks if she can come to one more feast, she's got him right where she wants him. But I think ultimately, again, it goes back to the people praying. And it's, ultimately, I think it's God's sovereignty in control here. And he's restraining Esther from asking right now because it, after he's the king can't sleep. And I'm, I'm dipping into the next chapter briefly. But like that, it has to be just right, I think. And I think that's the moving thing when you think about it looking back. Ultimately, it's because of God's sovereignty. He's he's wait, like he's using. I think Ezra is Esther is using wisdom here to get him right where she she wants him. But I think it's God behind the scenes yeah, re- restraining her. That's great. Now that Scott spilled the beans, look at chapter six, verse one. <laughs> On oh the goodness. night the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds. I love the book of memorable deeds. That just the way that sounds makes me makes me chuckle. The Chronicles, and they were read before the king. Boy, if you need something to get to sleep, it's the Book of Memorable <laughs> Deeds. And so, sure enough, Papa, you've mentioned this a couple times this week. Certainly, God's timing here is impeccable. Feast 1 was before the reading of the boring book. Feast 2 is after that, and a lot happens by reading that book, a lot of dominoes fall. Absolutely. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead. No, now. we don't do it. That's exactly right. Good. Uh, Jared, get us out of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of want to go through what's going on with the two feast scenario here. For one, it's going to give this little interaction where Haman comes out and he sees Mordecai. Um, if Esther had already made that petition, then possibly none of this would have happened. So this gives Haman a chance to set the gallows up, which... Mm-hmm. I don't want to spoil what's going to happen there, but <laughs> can't read ahead. There's going to be a a big reversal that gets. Yeah, there. we talk about reversals in this book, and this is going to be one of the one that, ones that goes down. On the other hand, Esther, um, she gives two feasts. What's going through her head is, um, in the first one, all she's doing is preparing the meal for them, 
And the second one, she's going to actually tell the king that the Jews need saving. And it reminded me a little bit of how evangelism works for us when we're, we're going to an unbeliever and we're saying, you know, we, we want you to come to Christ. We want you to find salvation. There's almost a twofold approach to it. You have to show yourself to be a model of good works. And I think Esther does that here, where she, she goes through all this effort of preparing the king, or, or preparing the, fe- the feast for the king and for Haman. And then in the second one, she's going to actually, you know, do, the words are going to come out, the truth's going to come out that the Jews need saved. And I think we need both of these things when we evangelize. We have to show people that we are a light in this world. And Matthew says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So I think the two feasts accomplish both of these things. Hmm. Really interesting. Papa? There's one other risk, though, if we've already talked about that. She's got to reveal in the second feast that she is indeed a Jew, mm-hmm. which she has concealed from him. And it takes you back to chapter 1 when Vashti didn't cooperate and, and mm. lost her queenship. So. Hmm. Yeah, no, some risk. It is, oh, tremendous risk. Scott, anything there from from four to nine there, eight? I mean, I think that at, the, at the end of four, she sort of wavers at first, and Mordecai kind of gives, charges her, and then she comes convinced, like, this is what I should do. Uh, God has raised me up for a time as this. And then now she, I just feel like it's so commendable how she behaves. She acts mm-hmm. humbly before him. She, she's wise. She's subtle. And she, she's, like, in control, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, so once she, once she becomes convinced, it's just like, man, she's, she's on it now. Yeah. And that's a good word, control, because I think this is the this is beginning the sequence where she is in control, or through through God's power. Um, now he's accommodating her, the king. Right. What a change from one to four to chapter Absolutely. five here. Yeah. No, that's that's really good. And and I'm gonna. I think we have to make that connection with the the prayer. You know. The prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And certainly uh, we see this now in Esther and her whole change. Very intriguing here. And uh, Jared, love to start with you on verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Just that alone. Um, his pride. Yesterday at the men's breakfast we talked about pride and uh it's just it's a horrible thing and boy does it have Haman by the neck doesn't it yeah this is uh this is circumstance circumstantial joy right here and we are so prone to falling into this trap that Haman is in right now where our circumstances are determining our happiness they're determining the amount of joy that we have in life it's just in the in the past eight verses here Haman's been invited to this feast he has all this control and all this power, and now he's happy. But the instant he sees Mordecai, his joy turns to gloom. So we we have to guard ourselves against this type of circumstantial joy and find our rest in God, find our joy in God, because Christ is seated on the throne. That fact will never change. We've come to a kingdom that can't be shaken, and we need to, to rest in God's sovereignty in that area and find our joy in Christ rather than um, our circumstances. Isn't that good? Scott, you reminded us that our joy isn't based on our circumstances, and that drives us to prayer. And certainly, as the Lord providentially brings about different circumstances, our joy doesn't need to fluctuate. Now, it's such a good warning to us because I think it does. I know mine does. And and I don't 
we don't want it to. We need to remember that every one of those trials, which usually robs us of a little bit of joy, doesn't need to. It's building perseverance, character, and hope, making us more mature and complete in Christ, causing us to pray hundreds of good things that come through those. Papa, any insights there? I just uh, discovered this Spurgeon quote on pride, uh, for example, and, 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 and this would apply to all of us. The more objects you set your heart upon, the more thorn the thorns there are to tear your peace of mind to shreds. Hmm. Yeah. So remember Second Corinthians 12, when I'm weak, I'm strong. That's so good. Yeah, and a great verse to remember when we're walking through those trials, Scott. Yeah, one, one commentator just said, The praise of people is what gets Haman up in the morning, what gives him his reason for living. Such a motivation is insatiable. Even having the highest position in the government of the empire and the empire's com- emperor's command that everyone treat him with the utmost honor is not sufficient for Haman. Just one man refusing to praise him leaves him furious. Such is the tender ego of the self-centered. And another guy just said, even though he has still possessed unparalleled power in the kingdom, that wasn't enough. There was a void at the center of his life that no amount of success could fill. And I just, you have to think of Augustine's quote, our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, that's what was going on. And you think about someone who may have everything, really they don't. There's this gigantic emptiness in the center of their life. But then you think, for the Christian, man, they may have nothing, but they have this contentment. I think somebody just said pride and discontentment sleep in the same bed. And maybe that was Beg who said that. Pride and discontentment sleep in the same bed. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And just what Jared is saying, it just reminded me of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Like, at the end of his life, when he's so weak, he couldn't even hardly go. For, for, he would sit in his chair almost all day. And here was this incredible, famous preacher. He preached to thousands and thousands of people. And now he's humbled to, he can't hardly move. He can barely go to the bathroom and back to the chair. And the guy was talking to him at the end of his life and said, how are you dealing with this? Like, God has like humbled you now. You can't preach. How are you dealing with it? And he said, uh, he quoted that verse where Jesus said, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He said, I am perfectly content. And here's Lloyd-Jones with hardly anything. Here's Haman with everything. And yet the, the, the opposite is true where Lloyd-Jones has contentment because he, the void has been filled. His name is written in heaven. Here's Haman with everything. And one guy won't bow to him. And he's furious because at the at his center of his life, he doesn't have Christ. And, yeah. Yeah. That the, the happiness goes up and down. The joy shouldn't in the, in the life of the believer. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really good. Very circumstantial, his yeah, joy. That's right. And, and I'm so thankful that that doesn't, it doesn't need to be, be us. And I think about when maybe it was Scott or Jared was talking, the... For us to ever be jealous or envious of an unbeliever, that's, that's a ridiculous thought, mm-hmm. right? Of, or of somebody else's circumstance, whether they're an unbeliever or not. You and I have the perfect circumstances for us, whatever those are. They're just right. There is nothing ever wrong with our circumstances. It's just my attitude that's the problem, not the circumstances itself. Jared, how about 10 um, could you read there a little bit? And um, because uh, things do change in a in a hurry here. Yeah, verse ten. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. How great in my party is what he has. At his house, hey, let's talk about me, all about me, right? I can just see, like, signs in Haman's house. Haman's great. How about Haman? Let's talk about the sons of Haman, you know? And, and, and then we look at it, and doesn't it seem ridiculous? And then I think, 
Mm, man, I wonder if my heart's that much different sometimes. If I'm not guarded, if I'm not, you know, saturated my mind with the word. It's kind of, we, we know better than to make a party about ourselves. but do we sometimes have that kind of a self-centeredness? Jared, what's your thoughts here when you read this? Yeah, I was, I was kind of meditating on Proverbs 30 this week, I, and I found something that I thought would be pretty good for us. It says, three things are never satisfied, four never say enough, shoal the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. And I think we can honestly add <laughs> Haman's list of accomplishments to this list here in Proverbs 30. Haman is also never satisfied. It doesn't matter what he gets. He's like Icarus that's flying a little too close to the sun. He's just, <laughs> he's, about to, he's about to fall too. His wings are about to melt off here in the next couple chapters. But this is also how our flesh works, too. Mm-hmm. We're, we're n- never satisfied with just one indulgence. We always need something else to give us that, that same satisfaction, and we'll never find that satisfaction in our flesh. That's good. Scott? Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things is that this is a profound illustration, one guy said, of the dissatisfaction of the things of this world. That's kind of what we're talking about. Uh, there's always a fly in the ointment. We may think such people have everything from our outward observation, but they are often the most miserable people uh, on the earth. Beg called Haman, the Facebook page, gone crazy. Yeah, like, just, I, I like that. that. Yeah. <laughs> so good. Uh, just all about me. Another guy said, here is self-centeredness writ large. You will never hear Haman say, tell me about yourself, but only let me tell you about myself. And I mean, he, again, Beg called Haman a rascal, which he is. He's filled with pride and we should jump all over him. But I, I like what, Jerry, what you're saying. There's a guy, Dale Davis, that I've read some of his commentaries and he'll often take a character that we should judge and jump on. But then he'll turn it and say, is there some of him in you? And I just think for us, it's like, there's probably a little bit of Haman in all of us in this room, like the Romans 12, you know, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. And I think James Boyce just said, all of us, all of us tend to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. So I think just seeing Haman, you should see a little bit of yourself and say, you know, Lord, deliver me from pride. And uh, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. And I, I was just reading this uh, Dale Davis thing recently, and he talked about John Murray, who was a professor in Westminster Seminary, and he was having a discussion about sin and dwelling sin, and talking about, you know, how much sin was still in him. And, uh, and apparently a lady just said to him, like, uh, well, John, certainly you don't think that bad about yourself. And he said he looked dead serious at her and said, ma'am, if you knew, like, the cesspool of sin in me, you would never say that. Mm-hmm. And I think reminding yourself of your own sin now, and then Christ and his suffering should, keep, should humble us uh, when we're thinking about that we have some of Haman in us. That's so good. Absolutely. And just that these things, pride, Papa, tell us about pride as you've studied it this week for both this and for Saturday morning. It just, it'll attack, won't it? And it never takes a playoff. It's never, if we grow in humility in one area, and this is really Edwards seemed to have kind of, Scott, what you're just talking about there, is it's always there. And it's always raising up its ugly head. In fact, he's, uh, Edward said that pride was the most secret, hidden, and deceitful of all sins. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just hides itself. But as we talked about, too, it manifests itself in uh, self-exaltation as well as degradation. And so it, it works both ways. Mm-hmm. Sometimes to have a pity party, we feel so sorry for ourselves mm-hmm. so that you'll Make me feel better, mm-hmm. and that type of thing. So we're, you got to be real careful how pride works. Yeah, and I think self pity, at least for men, I think it's one of the least 
attractive things. You know, it's a, but who of us doesn't struggle with it in some way? And we can get some wrong thinking there. And we have to go bathe our mind in the word, don't we? We have to go back to Romans 12, 1 and 2, to, to, that it's going to be God's word that does that surgery on us, the recalibrate, rethinking. Scott, you've reminded us how many times if we go back to the gospel, we, we train our, our minds, a renewing of our minds, but it's going to have to take a change of the lies that we tend to believe that I think all of us are prone to, especially in this area of pride, and a renewing of our mind. And that's what God's word will do. With 100% success rate, it will never return void. It never has. I love when we do get there, but let's get there quickly and not let this stew. Jared? Um, yeah. <laughs> can we move on to 12 yeah, and 13? But can, can we just say one thing more Absolutely. about 11? I mean, he, he itemizes. We, we, I don't think we discuss this. Uh, the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and that was a big deal in Persia to have sons. Didn't he have 10? 10, 10 sons. All the promotions with which the king had honored him. You know, and, and furthermore, he sent and brought his friends and wife, Sarah. So he, he, he yeah, yeah. called his Hold friends it. to come to his house so he could host this pity party for, for I mean, praise party. Celebration for, for party. Himself. Celebration party for himself. Mm -hmm. And uh, and how he had how the king had advanced him above all the other officials and ser servants of the king. So yeah. I'm sorry, Jared. But no, I'm thinking if you had 10 sons, that would humble you and not make you proud. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a lot of work. Uh, Jared. Yeah, so verse 12, then Haman said, even Queen, Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast, she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. So I kind of wanted to stop here for a minute and look at Mordecai's faithfulness. I feel like we haven't really gotten to expound on this area here, but already earlier in the chapter he's shown himself it says, when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him. Mm -hmm. So if we look at Mordecai, this is a man who is operating <laughs> on a different level than everyone else in the story. Mm -hmm. um, it, it reminds me of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He, Jesus keeps pushing through despite the fact that there is this huge trial in front of him. And Haman keeps coming out day after day. Mordecai is completely unfazed. And you got to think, this type of faith does not come from within. We don't have this, this level of courage within ourselves, but Christ does. And we can go to God and we can find strength to continue to prevail and resist when the forces of evil are coming against us. Love it. Scott? Yeah, that's great. Papa? I just think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and mm -hmm. Daniel, as well as Daniel himself. I mean, different mm -hmm. stories, but still in the book of Daniel. I mean, they did honor God yeah, and, and got in trouble because of that. And surely, I think you're right, Jared, Mordecai has to realize that his neck's on the line by doing this. And in fact, he's a day away from hanging if we didn't know the rest of the story, right, <laughs> on that one. And so he, it's, he has to realize that he's in pretty hot water by, by acting like this. Yeah, Papa, could you remind us of Mordecai the Jew? I think that's interesting in there again in verse... 13 big problem right there that he's a jew that's the main that's the main issue and just give us a, a quick brief history of why 
Haman hates Mordecai. More because he's not bowing down, but there's more. There's the there's the story going back to Genesis of the uh, uh, the Amalekites. Uh, Amalek was the son of uh, Esau, I believe, and uh, and the Amalekites were enemies of of Israel. And on the uh, exit from Exodus from uh, Egypt, the Amalekites were attacking the Israelites, and God uh, cursed the Amalekites and told Israel to, to take care of them, take them out. And they didn't do that uh, exactly. And later on, we see King Saul, who was supposed to um, uh, slay the Amalekites, and he left the king Agag and a bunch of his animals uh, for sacrifice purposes. And uh, that was uh, in a violation of God's direct order. And as a result, uh, Samuel had to take care of Agag, mm -hmm. which was not his job. He's the prophet, but, right. he, but he didn't mind following so, God's orders. So we're talking about centuries of... A thousand years, maybe. Wow. If you go back to Amalek yeah. and Esau and all that. And so you do say, hey, wait a second, this seems like a... It doesn't seem like it's sensible to hate Mordecai with this kind of hatred, but that's... Uh, all part of it, it seems. Scott, you've got some good stuff. Yeah, I mean, just gonna. I mean, again, the big point of the book of Esther is like the providence of God at work. And I just, this was so good. I have to I'm just read a chunk of this. He's, this is uh, Ian Duguid again. He said, uh, "It was not Esther's subtlety alone that ultimately transformed the situation. God used Esther's subtlety to be sure." But he also used Mordecai's refusal to bow and Haman's self-centeredness to bring each protagonist to the exact place where he wanted them. Regardless of her intent, Esther's invitation to Haman puffed up his pride. Mordecai's presence at the gate when Haman went home and his continued refusal to bow the knee pricked Haman's happy mood. The counsel of Haman's wife and his friends in response to his inner turmoil led him to build the massive gallows and seek an audience with the king early the next morning. All of these events were necessary for the unfolding of God's plan. If Esther jumped the gun... As it were, and presented her request too soon, the king's memory of Mordecai's act in saving him would not yet have been stirred, nor would the gallows yet have been constructed on which to hang Haman with such perfect poetic justice. It was undoubtedly God's plan for the whole scenario to play out the way it did, so that he could bring the individual conflict between Haman and Mordecai to its perfect sort of ending before the wider conflict was also resolved. Notice that God's plan in this case was worked out without thunder and lightning or a parting of the sea in order to save his people. No one was delivered from a fiery furnace or miraculously preserved in a den of lions, God's work here is every bit as subtle as Esther's. It proceeds by unobtrusively nudging each of the characters in the story to behave exactly in accord with their own wishes and temperaments, while at the same time, they do exactly what he has decreed. And I just think, like the application that we've made again and again, God is sovereign and complete control in this scenario. So he's in control of our lives, completely in control. Every situation that happens is for our good this week. But for me, reading it this week, I was moved to worship God, thinking, what a God we serve, I think, is what, what you should come away from Esther 5 thinking, wow, like every little situation is being worked exactly the way he wanted. And the exact timing, he's exactly right. I, there was an illustration that my dad gave of a guy who was a scientist who was a Christian, and he loved to sit outside and watch thunderstorms because he'd studied thunder and lightning, and he just, it moved him to worship. He'd sit there, and this thunderstorm would roll over his house, and he would just say, yay, God, like worshiping God at this thunderstorm. And I think that's how you should respond to Esther 5. What? I mean, I'm really was just like, what a God. We, we know he's all powerful. He's in complete control. But then you you read about every intricate detail and it's just caused your heart to worship God. Yeah, isn't that great? And to remember the Romans 8, 28, how many things are happening? That all things are working together for good to those who love him and are called according to it. Can you imagine 
how many people are being affected, how many believers God is making, orchestrating every single event in the life of every single believer all the time. What an administrative nightmare that would be, you know, and I don't have a lick of administration in me. And so to me, that just sounds like, oh, but God orchestrates that every day, all day long, continually. How could we not worship, Scott, like you're saying? And how can we not live a life if that's the truth, and it is, we know that to be true, then our joy does not need to fluctuate. Our joy can be ecstatic with joy day in and day out, knowing that God's completely in control, the circumstances are perfect, and God's orchestrating great things for his glory. Jared, you want to get the last verse for us there and, uh, and um, give us some thoughts. Yeah. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So I kind of want to go off what you guys are saying a little bit here about God's sovereignty. I, I was reminded of the Proverbs that says, He who digs a pit will fall into it. <laughs> <laughs> so you have th these forces of evil led by Haman and with Xerxes going along with it, where they're trying to set up this trap that Mordecai is eventually supposed to be falling in, and it's you're going to get this comical reversal again. But we shouldn't um, have fear when we see all these evil things going on around us. We should know that God is still sovereign over that, and these people are not going to be stronger than God is. Whatever their wills are, however much power it seems they have, God is still in control of all things and working all things out together for good. And even if we don't see justice in this life or, or retribution, we know that God has a day of reckoning in the future. And we know that Christ has already accomplished his work and that God has dealt with evil. So good. And the Romans 12 shows us that that frees us. We don't need to take uh, revenge on it. God's going to do that. God's going to take care of, of that. And it may not look like it in this life. I think oftentimes it doesn't. But we can be faithful that or we can be um, take heart that it will that God's faithful in that. Pop, any kind of thoughts on any of that to close us? Well, I just I have to go to the Heidelberg Catechism and I should memorize this thing. It, what do you understand by the providence of God? This is in 1546. The Almighty and ever, this is on the providence of God, the Almighty and ever present power of God by which He upholds, as with His hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by His fatherly mm -hmm. hand. Isn't that I good? see all things. That's so good. And, and don't you think, I, in my mind, sometimes I think, well, wait a second. We just spent 26 weeks on this insane school. We know this. My heart doesn't know this very well. My brain knows it kind of, but my heart is slow to worship due to it. And so the constant reminder, let's read Esther often to just to be reminded of this because then in our own life we can say, Whoa, Tuesday at 3.30 and Saturday. That's okay. God's working here, Scott. No, I, 
I agree totally. I mean, I just think that uh, even trying to train yourself to think through God's at work in this specific instant and like the hard things, we can trust that he's at work, but then like the joyful things. He gives you so many things, so many gifts. I mean, today I was talking to Michael coming home and he was like, Dad, Daddy, who's that guy that gets his head cut off? That's what he was saying. I was like, John the Baptist? He said, yeah. He's like, why did that happen? Like, he's wanting to know why, like, what was the situation behind it? And I'm good to tell him. Yeah. I mean, yes, it's an intense story, but I get to tell him this, this Bible. Like, that's a privilege. I should thank God for this privilege. God gives you those things over and over again, and we should be abundantly grateful and worship him rightly when we see who he is and that he's at work, like that thing that Papa just read, Heidelberg Catechism. Yeah. And once again, God did, didn't spare his own son, and then the all of the plethora of things that he gives us every day, day in and day out. You know, 81 degrees all through the middle of this week, which makes me thrilled and makes some people just hot. You won't so, have to have your heater. No, I, I will have my heater on, but I, I'll have the less of it. Scott, would you pray and just ask the Lord to um, give us this kind of a, uh, a thought pattern as we live this life for his sure. glory? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we're, we're thankful for the privilege to, to open your word and to study from uh, Esther, the book of Esther, this wonderful book uh, in the Bible, and uh, just so thankful for this book and this chance to, to talk about it. And uh, certainly we see your sovereignty, your providence clearly on display, even though your name is not mentioned clearly, you are the one in control and at work, just culminating every event there, uh, ultimately for your people's good and for your glory. And I just pray that we would be quick to see uh, your, your providence uh, in our lives and help us to have strong faith that every event of our life this week is orchestrated for our good. And I pray you'd produce deep uh, contentment in, in us. I pray that our contentment would not be based on circumstances like Haman's was. I pray that our contentment would be based on you. We are to rejoice in the Lord and the Lord, never, you never change. So I pray that we'd have deep, strong joy and contentment in you. And I pray that we would, would be quick to, to give thanks to you when, when we see your hand, your goodness in our life. You, you give us so many blessings and uh, so often we're ungrateful. But I pray that you'd produce genuine, deep thanksgiving and genuine worship as we think about you and uh, all that you've done for us. And pray you'd be at work in the service to build up your people. And uh, I do pray that our worship would be done in spirit and in truth as, as we uh, sing uh, in the service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good deal. 10 del 3. Now we can read ahead. Chapter 6, finally, right? And please take a pride sheet um, uh, right there on the corner. If um, you could pass those around. There's 41 evidences of pride that are quick to hurt our feelings. And then Papa put together a page.